You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, a celebration of Earth Day. That's coming up on Monday. Also ahead, new music from a local artist. And get this, she's only 16 years old. But we begin on our streets. Afwaba hits the road for a few motorcycle safety reminders. We are in the midst of spring season, and that means that spring season is quite synonymous with motorcycle season. We're going to see a lot of motorcyclists out on the road um, and enjoying the beautiful weather. But we always have to keep in mind that even when you're on the road, you have to be safe. And so joining me to chat today is the executive director for Learning Curves Foundation, Don Redcop, who's going to give us a couple of safety tips to make sure that we're all safe when we head out onto the roads. Don, how are you doing today? Very well. It's spring, you know. I love spring, and I, I'm fine with even the geese and everything. I, so long as there's no snow, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, it becomes a little difficult to motorcycle in that stuff. Right? <laughs> For sure. So let's get into it. Um, now that it's sort of uh, the, the best season to start of maybe um, get that wear and tear out of motorcyclists and uh, finally get the need for speed on the road, we need some yeah. safety tips. What are some great um, and general safety tips that you can give motorcyclists heading out onto the roads? It's fairly simple. Let's, let's start with training, which is what we do. It's absolutely necessary, not only for your own safety, but in order to get, uh, get insurance. There are, I think, no insurers left in the province that will touch a motorcyclist unless they've had 17 hours of training. And that's where, where we come in. Um, the the other items are, how can I say it? I have to be a mature adult to ride. It's it's not something for teenagers that um, uh, that have not got some experience on the road. It's not a good idea, for example, to go straight from uh, no driving, no highway experience at all to riding a motorcycle. Uh, we strongly suggest that people get car experience, first of all. The other thing that that, uh, we stress highly is almost all motorcycle accidents are self-inflicted. That is, about one-third of accidents are clearly, where a motorcycle is involved, are clearly the result of motorcyclist mm, misbehavior, misattention, that kind of thing. So, we strongly suggest that that people plan for what is almost an inevitability. They will fall. They will be ignored by traffic. They will miss certain cues unless they're well experienced and well trained. And so, so we we suggest that that people cover up. You know, wear the best equipment that you can afford. Wear better equipment than you can afford. Um, be sensible about your choice of motorcycle. Um, you probably don't want to take on a bike immediately that's racetrack ready. Start small. Start small. Start humble. And learn to be comfortable on that machine because... One of the things that we stress in our training is that it, it is so difficult to not be hurt if you are touched by another vehicle or if you make contact with the road. Unlike a car where we get a little blase about a little fender scraper and so on, we can't afford that on a motorcycle. So, so dress well and, and, you know, act like a citizen. We don't want to become our own victims of our, our, uh, oh, I don't know, I suppose, inattention to detail around us on the road. Well said and well put, Don. And I love how you just mentioned, I think, off-the-top training. And that can just go the same way for uh, general drivers. Um, we don't just sort of get in a car and drive. We need to know, of course, the, the rules of the road um, and how to 
interact with other drivers on the road, if you will. Um, yeah. And I love how you also said to be humble about it. I think sometimes when we think we're going to get our, our when we first get our, our driver's license, we think, oh, I'm going to oh. get a Maserati <laughs> or or something <laughs> like that. But you need to sort of, no. let's say, drive in a toy like a Corolla first. Build yourself before, <laughs> you know, you get to the next level because that need for speed, if it's not well checked and if it's not properly trained, can escalate into something quite dangerous quite quickly. It certainly can. You have so little warning between the, the time that a situation develops and, and you're hitting that problem. In fact, some studies show that it's under two seconds between the point of oh and hitting something. So two seconds is a very small block of time, and there's not a whole lot of time to, to prepare for a fall. So... You know, be alert. The whole the whole thing is you must avoid situations that become panic situations for you. Okay. And so you mentioned um, earlier the gear. Um, talk to me about the, the safety behind the gear. Is it, of course, ideal, of course, to go in prepared, of course, wearing the helmet? And I think it's, I know I'm probably not saying the right terminology, but it looks like it's a backpack on the back um, when uh. when they're driving. Um, as opposed to you just sort of just getting on and driving off. Can you talk to me a little bit about the gear? Sure. The better coverage is the best coverage. So the more that you can cover skin, avoid heat loss, avoid the possibility of abrasion because, oh, your jeans rode up or, rode, or the, the denim wore through by contact with pavement. Um, a full-face helmet is, is the way to go. And that means that there's full coverage, you're not bothered by rain and insects and flying bits of gravel. Protect your head. It turns out that the extremities are the most vulnerable part of, of the motorcyclist's body. And uh, the, the more material that you can get that is abrasion-resistant and, oh, I suppose... Um, will protect you from the elements. If you're warm and dry and comfortable, you're much more likely to be safe. So cover up. Okay. Uh, use mm -hmm. leather. Use, use uh, composite materials. Use carbon fiber. Uh, jeans and a, a light jacket because it's a summer day, just don't cut it. Okay, so uh, apart from maybe watching the movies and they're like, oh, I want to dress like them, they should not sort of go towards what pop culture says. They need to sort of follow the, the rules. It's something that is actually protecting them. Yes, it is. Absolutely. No one expects to fall, but we should act as though we do expect to fall. That's, that's going to be an inevitability one day. Well said. Okay, and so what about the different... Um, uh, weather sort of events that may happen um, as opposed to maybe a day that might have rain, a dry day. Um, what are sort of some safety tips for, for motorcyclists in, in that event? Um, what if sort of it, it turns out as a sunny day to begin and then it quickly changes into like a hailstorm? What are some safety tips in terms of driving and according to the different weather conditions? It's a, it's a bit of a truism with bikers that you can't possibly dress for a full day's ride because you need a rain suit occasionally you need a dip in temperatures even in in into the evening you need uh, wind protection all of these things cause if not real damage they cause uh, a loss of body heat and and we become like turtles when we're cold it, it we're our reactant times are affected so we strongly recommend that you wear layers, wear material that will fend off the kinds of things that distract us, um, you know, things in our eyes, full uh, uh, goggles or a full face helmet are absolutely necessary for, oh, keeping you, uh, keeping you, I, I suppose, alert. Um, if, if you're at all tired or you're distracted and we don't even want to talk about cell phones on a motorcycle or marijuana or alcohol we we must be alert it's much more serious on a motorcycle than it is in a car for our safety agreed and i don't think i ever want to see 
well, you don't ever want to see anyone sort of driving distracted. But I think to the point where if I see a motorcyclist with a cell phone in their hand, I will be a little bit. I think I'm going to just take the bus. I can say that I've seen one fellow texting on a motorcycle. Okay. All right. And we're going to leave it right there. Um, yes. Yeah, so let's not copy that. At all. Okay. Quick question in terms of tips for drivers on the roads with motorcyclists. Do you have maybe a, a few general tips for, for them in terms of being watchful for motorcyclists on the road? Yeah. I see highway signs now uh, recommending that we watch out for motorcyclists. Mm-hmm. Um, on the general theory that motorcyclists are vulnerable, uh, they also, I, I have to blame motorcyclists for this too. We tend to take places in traffic that make us invisible, and we rely too much on our ability to out-accelerate and out-brake most of the cars around us. But we we don't plan as well as we should for the unexpected so keep motorcyclists must keep their distance and we'd appreciate very much if car drivers could also keep their distance from us to give us just that little extra bit of time if something strange happens sounds good and that's definitely fair enough okay and then also uh, talk to me about Learning Curves Foundation and the courses that you offer because, uh, you know, you're already giving us a lot of um, information um, and, and information that needs to be known on both sides um, for those heading out on the roads. But for those maybe who are now um, just uh, about to get their license or they now have it but they want more training, talk to me about the courses yeah. you offer. Okay. We offer both levels of licensing, a, a very basic one that is generally a weekend's worth of training. And we also offer a more advanced one, which is for people earning their final M license. And we have all kinds of general interest courses in between those licensing courses. So, for example, we strongly suggest that anyone who wants to get into the sport do a written test, first of all. You can do it online for free. You can go to the ministry and write a simple test, which will at least explore some of the things that you should know when you finally get on a motorcycle. It's certainly not training just to do the written test, but at least it opens your mind to the kinds of things that are preferred activity by motorcyclists. The The second level, the, the, the most common course, is a 17-hour long weekend course, and we do that all over the province and, and it's a closed course. We lend people the motorcycle, in fact, many motorcycles, and they have their chance to try out their equipment and our equipment and generally get a good primer into what is required to be safe on the road. And it's a fun, fun weekend, by the way, if any of your listeners are inclined to just get their feet wet, we offer that as well, a three-hour evening program uh, for just checking out to see if they want to take this a little bit further. That's awesome. Okay, so then where can listeners go for more information? We have a website, learningcurves.ca, and they can also phone us uh, on the website. There's a toll-free number from anywhere in the province. Don, thank you so much for schooling me, giving me some well-needed tips. I'm not a motorcyclist, but I'm a driver, <laughs> which means I still need to be schooled and need to know some good tips to make sure that everyone is safe on the roads throughout this spring season and into the summer. Thanks so much, Don. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region, where we have been celebrating Mother Earth throughout the month of April. But the big day is Monday. Jim Lang takes us to the great outdoors. Monday, April 22nd, is a big day, and now more than ever in 2019, a very important day in Canada. It is Earth Day, and thrilled to be speaking to Deb Doncaster, the president of Earth Day Canada. Deb, a real pleasure. How are you? Good morning. I'm great, Jim. Thanks. Well, I mean, I was just on vacation last summer with a family, and everywhere we went, they're saying, wow, this is the hottest summer we've had in X number of years. It is something that's changing the entire global climate, and I would think Earth Day in this country, Deb, is more important than ever before. 
You're absolutely right. Where did you go on holiday? Oh, we were in Europe. We were in Italy and France, and we baked. Yeah, it's amazing that we're feeling it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep, so for Earth Day this year, there's a number of really uh, important initiatives going on. I don't know if you're watching uh, the young woman from Sweden, Greta. Uh, yes. Um, but yeah, she's apparently up for a Nobel Peace Prize for all the work that she's doing to try to sort of get the youth uh, sector, a segment of the population involved in asking for policies that to, that, that can mitigate, um, you know, the, the heat and the climate. So... Uh, there's a lot of uh, marches and rallies going on across the country with respect to getting youth out to start vocalizing their concern about this issue. So uh, Earth Day is involved in a number of coalitions that are supporting that work, and we've got a calendar on our website. So if people are looking for events, they can go to earthday.ca and see where there might be something to participate in there. And then for, for younger kids and families, we've actually um, got a partnership going on with a company called Kamek that does outdoor gear and footwear. And it's a, it's a campaign called Earth Play, and it's about getting kids outdoors and engaged in unstructured free play, kind of like the play that you and I probably did yeah. when we were kids. Yeah, you just run outside and wait for your mom to tell you to come exactly. in for dinner, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of research and evidence now to suggest that that kind of play is really, really important, not only to just sort of developing kids that are resilient, um, but also getting them connected to the environment and becoming stewards of the environment later on in life. So we've got a big event happening um, at Trinity Bellwoods Park in downtown Toronto on Saturday, April 20th, where we're going to be doing a pop-up adventure playground. Um, and we've got a whole toolkit available on the website so that schools and other communities with children who want to get out and offer sort of free play type of um, events can do so. Speaking with Deb Doncaster, the president of Earth Day Canada, coming up on Monday, April 22nd. Deb, I, my wife and I have teenage daughters, and, and I don't uh. think I can explain to you enough what a, a positive impact people like you and your organization has had with our children um, from elementary school up. They're both in high school now. They are right. so aware of the environment, of of the the ecology, uh, whether it's uh, recycling and composting and being aware of, uh, Dad, you don't need that many lights on. I, I'm constantly being hounded by them because <laughs> the message has been sent through to them, and it, it's right. really it's laid a good foundation for them going forward. It's, you should be very proud. Thank you, Jim. Well, you know what? I think these kids, um, the teenagers of today, growing up with that messaging for the last decade or two, I think we're seeing a real shift in, in how they see the world and what expectations they have. So it's pretty exciting to, to see that starting to emerge. Well, I mean, I know, I mean, just in my circle, I'm a guy, middle-aged guy, and, you know, in the late 40s, early 50s range, and I know so many friends are driving hybrids and electric vehicles, uh, we're all trying to do our part. Uh, my wife and I are trying to do a passive solar when we redo our roof. Uh, it's it's become something that isn't, ooh, you're doing something for the environment. It's something that you do every day that's not seemed as weird anymore. That's right. That's right. And I think that just seeing what the federal government is doing in terms of uh, trying to support provinces to develop some kinds of policies and set a price on carbon, um, and to be innovative and diverse about how they can go about uh, reducing emissions uh, is also a really positive step forward. Deb, I, I want to talk about your journey. How did you get to this point in life where you're the president of an organization like this? When did it all start for you, Deb? Huh. Well, I, I, as I say, the reason I'm interested in the free play agenda is that it, I think there is a real correlation and research is backing that up around kids who get outside and just kind of roam around and get to appreciate the environment on their own terms. That was my childhood. Um, and so a lot of that freedom to really engage with my local community and my local environment. Um, and then when I was in high school, I did a lot of Earth Day events. I did a lot of tree planting events and that kind of stuff. So by the time I was at university, I looked at, um, you know, what was the best way to sort of get involved and keep going in terms of my interest in the environment. So I did an urban planning degree at York University. And then I got involved in uh, the renewable energy sector. So built the windmill at Exhibition Place oh. and just saw how profound uh, that project was on the community just in terms of you know, that turbine is owned by residents of Toronto. So really seeing that people are eager for big solutions that they can be a part of. And that, I think, just really entrenched it for me. 
I mean, I see people, I know I, my wife and I and our family, we live in Newmarket. There's people, the roofs are scattered all around our area, that area of York region with solar panels, whether it's on businesses or outside or on the roof. It's solar panels have become something that you just expect to see randomly in houses all around it. it it's it. Whatever message you guys sent through, it has really hit home for a lot of families in the region and in Ontario. Absolutely. I think solar is um, now the prices have come down so dramatically, and it's such an adaptable um, form of technology, you know, in terms of rooftops, and, and you know, you can even, even get solar um, shingles these days. So that technology is advancing so quickly that it's a no-brainer, and I think... Um, you know, we're at a bit of a crossroads in Canada and certainly in Ontario around big investments into transmission lines where, you know, if we're going to start going towards more sort of home-based forms of renewable generation and people are going to plug in their electric cars, um, I think it's time for a big, big shift in the energy sector. But that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, Deb, I know uh, just from my observation, with our, my, I have to just go by my family and my circle of friends and, yeah. and whatnot, I can see that the paradigm shift that's taken place over the last decade or so with the attitudes towards the environment and Earth Day. Do you find it easier in your standpoint, heading up an organization like this, Earth Day Canada, knowing that so many people are on board? It's You almost welcome and look forward to April 22nd because there's, like everyone's behind you now. Absolutely. I think it's uh, definitely that everybody looks for the ways, the ways to do it green. I mean, we work with so many different companies and there are so many different types of companies that are really trying to make a shift. Um, and so it's no longer really, really challenging to get them to come to the table. It's actually quite easy. Um, so that's, to me, a really, really exciting shift. I think for Earth Day, what one of the goals that I had when I first came to this organization was the idea of seeing if we could work with the UN to have Earth Day um, recognized as a formal statutory holiday worldwide just to really bring home the message that, you know, the environmental movement and sector and initiative crosses all cultures, religions, and boundaries, um, such that it's now a universal day of, of, you know, connecting to the earth. But not there yet. Well, Deb, I'm, I'm going to get a hold of Angelina Jolie and her people. She's tight with the UN. Okay, great. Maybe we could set something up because all Canadians could use another stat holiday, and I can't okay. think of a better thing. Deb, you should be very, very proud, you and your people, what you guys okay. have done with Earth Day Canada. You can get more details at earthdaycanada.ca, Monday, April 22nd. Every little bit that we do, you don't have to do a big thing, but every little bit adds up to save this country, does it not? Yeah, thank you so much for reaching out, Jim. Good to talk to you. Deb, it's an absolute pleasure. All the best. Take care. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We continue our focus on Earth Month with a few options to help you go green. Christy Laverty with the details. So joining us today on The Feed is Bill Stewart. He is a co-founder and president of Terra20. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Thanks for having me. We're talking today because Earth Day is on Monday. You know, we wanted to talk a little bit about sustainability products, people's purchasing power. And before we kind of get to that part, tell us a little bit about Terra20 for people who might not know. Of course, yeah. Well, we're owned and operated here, right here in Ottawa. Um, we are a retailer committed to sourcing healthy, everyday essentials uh, that are cruelty-free, non-toxic, and ethically sourced. We've recently launched a franchise model, uh, a neighborhood-oriented franchise model, with, uh, with the goal of expanding into neighborhoods across Canada. In fact, we're actually interviewing uh, potential candidates in your area. But that being said, we offer everything from skincare, cosmetics, to baby and cleaning products. There's approximately 25,000 products uh, plus inside our store. We have 17 departments and represented within approximately 800 brands. Um, we have a very unique offering um, that's exclusive to Terra 20, where we offer what we call Eco Bar, which we refer to as Canada's largest refill station for personal care and cleaning products. Essentially, you buy the product once in the vessel, and you keep bringing it back, and we reduce the cost uh, simply because you're not having to repurchase the bottle, uh, the cap, and, of course, the label. So it's exciting to hear that there's maybe something coming to our region. The other thing, too, is is that you do have so many products on Terra20.com that, you know, really focus on that health, beauty, sustainability. So there's so many options for people. 
And that's sometimes yeah. one of the things that people struggle with, right? This idea of saving the planet is such a big endeavor. endeavor. You know, how can yeah, they I, possibly do anything? Yeah, well, you know what? You, you talk about um, challenging, and it's such a massive endeavor. Let me tell you the reason why we started up the company. Steve, who, uh, Steve Kaminsky, who's a close personal friend of mine, and what I would refer to as a serial entrepreneur, was lamenting to me years ago, uh, when I was in career transition, uh, about the challenges he had in incorporating sustainable elements into his home. You know, it's just not easy, to your point. And he asked me to conduct this research on the concept of a store dedicated to making sourcing healthy and sustainable products easy. Our research uncovered that mainstream Canadians are interested in healthy and more sustainable products, but it just was not easy. And they, they, they're buying these products for themselves, for their family, and certainly for the environment. And our mission, quite frankly, was to make it easy because it, it absolutely was not easy. And so that was one of the mandates when we were sourcing out all these products was to ensure that what we were really creating at the end of the day was an easy process that you know mainstream consumers could come in, investigate, research, touch, smell, and really determine how green they wanted to be in terms of their purchasing of alternative products. You know, one of the things that I love is, is that you have ethics that people can find right on your website that explain things that we should maybe know a little bit more about, but help educate consumers when they are looking at products and what they should be looking for. Tell us a little bit more about the ethics and why you felt it was really important to have those ethics there for people. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, that's part, uh, one part of the easy process. We've identified nine ethics in the, uh, in the sensitivity area to what our consumers would be looking for. And in building the ethics, what we've done is we've simplified the shopping experience. So as an example, if you were concerned about organic products that were based on organic matter, you would then look for the organic symbol. If you are a vegan, as an example, you'll actually look for the bunny. And you can see all these to your point on our website where we provide a brief description. And part of the simplification process is that when you align yourself to the ethic, and you may have three, you may have five that you ultimately are looking to satisfy, when you come into the store to actually buy the products or online, to your point, you will actually see that each product has the ethic that is satisfied associated to each and every product. And it appears on every single price tag inside our store, and it appears on every single product in our webpage. And when people are looking at, you know, sustainability, because so much, we're talking so much these days about plastic and waste, and really we've seen so much in the news over, you know, months even, islands of plastic in the ocean, you know, ocean life being really almost consumed by the plastic that's inside their bodies. And, and going back to that idea of feeling overwhelmed and, you know, how can people make small changes? So talk to us a little bit about some of the products that people can purchase that go towards helping them reduce the amount of plastic and waste, um, you know, things that we're just throwing out. Yeah, well, you know what, we, we refer to it as pointless plastic here, but you're absolutely right. Single-use plastic is a, is a big concern right now, and it's actually not just a big concern for communities such as Ottawa, but it's a national concern. And, and the numbers that we're contributing to landfill waste is actually staggering. Some of the most simplified solutions you can think of that help to reduce that are things like switching to reusable straws. Canadians, on a daily average, believe it or not, use 57 million straws oh a day. And that generates almost 2 billion straws. They will not be accepted at recycle plants. So reusable straws is a big, big area for us. Um, using canvas uh, grocery bags or even swapping single-use plastic water bottles for that purpose if you want to be uh, not having to purchase it. And the bottom line is there's stainless steel water bottles that go a long way. There's littlest lunch components. There's many, many different ways that you can eliminate the use of plastics that people just aren't aware of. In fact, we have a reduce uh, waste icon that you can, again, research on our website. And online um, alone, there's over 2,000 products that are all about reducing waste. Yeah, and really this is something that, you know, small acts can really have big impact. So where do you see things moving as far as that, um, you know, reducing the single-use plastic, you know, all of those, the sustainability products that we really need to start looking at, especially, you know, for example, I'm a mom, I pack lunches, and, you know, schools are moving to that litterless lunch. Um, and sometimes that can be challenging because litterless at school, it just means that that's coming home and we're still tending to throw some things away. So where do you see things moving as far as reducing 
looking at smarter products to help us live environmentally friendly? You know, you, you talk about, you know, small things having big uh, impacts, and we refer to this as, you know, thinking big, acting small, and that these small actions that we and the decisions we make as individuals to alternatives can have a massive impact when done in volume. So things like the reusable straws, selecting canvas grocery bags, swapping out single-use plastic water bottles, you know, moving to stainless steel bottles, these are all um, alternatives that are readily available, cost-effective, and competitively priced that are really easy for entry-level consumers to seek out alternatives that, once again, in a small way and a small action as an individual done in volume will have a very positive impact on the environment overall. When we talk about this, it comes to mind, you know, when we talk about saving the planet, mm-hmm. it's about purchasing power, but it's also when you use reusable products, you are saving money in the end. And we know that that can be the big driver for people uh, when it comes to keeping money in their pockets because you need to factor in what you're saving by not wasting. That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And in fact, a lot of people, have, there's a stigma that goes around that buying you know, healthy alternatives has a higher price tag. That's not exactly accurate. It is, in fact, a myth. Because when you compare our products to conventional products, they may last longer. They will ultimately be healthier, but they may very well last longer. Think of a candle you can buy at any department store for 99 cents. You might find it here for $2.99, but it's actually going to burn three times longer, and it's not going to add any toxins inside your home, which was another report that was put out not too long ago by Environmental Defense around the dirty truth about cleaning products and the impact to our personal environment. And it found that the inside air quality inside our homes was three to five times more toxic than outside. And it's being driven by things like that, products that we're buying that are releasing toxins, cleanings we use, cleaning products we're using inside our home that are having a negative impact on our personal environment. And simply by just adopting uh, healthy alternatives, you greatly reduce that, that harmful toxicity inside your own in, in-house air quality. So many things that we can be doing every day. Um, it it's it feels empowering to know that there's so many more choices today. And you know, I I feel like again going back to that idea of being a mom. My kids are 13 and 15, and you know they're hyper aware of the impacts on the planet, and they're willing to make sacrifices as young people. They're willing to make the choices. So where do you see? that part of things moving, you know, obviously kids, they're tied in, they're plugged in, you know, we still have a long way to go to educating. And you know what I would say, I do a lot of work with colleges and universities here, and you're absolutely right, the millennials are committed to the environment, and they're seeking ways out that they can actually make a difference. And you know what it is, you know, what I would say this, and then in the, in the seven years of operations, you know, what, when we think back seven years ago in September 2012 to where we're at today, if there's one thing that we recognize, and that is consumers know what they want, but more importantly, they know what they don't want, and they don't want harmful chemicals and tox- toxic chemicals inside the products they buy for everyday use, period. And, uh, and as such, that's driving a lot of our growth. Uh, and a lot of our uh, the adoption of a healthier, more sustainable lifestyle because, to your point, it doesn't have to come at the sacrifice of your pocketbook. It, it, it is a myth that it's actually more expensive. The products are very comparable to, all, to traditional products, but what, uh, what Steve and I were attempting to accomplish in the creation of this brand, and we did it in our flagship store, which, of course, is 20,000 square foot uh, store, um, 17 departments, and the massive amount of products we have, was just, just to show the awareness to the consumer that there is choice, and that choice varies from a varying price point to the varying quality of, of what you get for the money you pay, and, and we, do, we tried to establish a good, better, best scenario as it relates to the products we have, and on the ethics, as, you, as we talked about earlier, are all associated to every product inside the store. Thanks so much. There's so much information here. Before we go, the website, because not only can you purchase products anywhere in Canada, but you guys have a great blog, um, and there's so much information, and people can find information about the ethics. Again, just give everybody that website uh, before we go so they can head over there and check it out. Sure. It's www.terra20.com. That's T-E-R-R-A 20.com. Thanks again, Bill. It was great chatting with you, and happy Earth Day. Same to you, and thanks for having me. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If you missed any part of our show, go to our website, 1059theregion.com. Our next stop, a fundraiser with a bit of a tasty twist.
A Taste for Life. It is an event that's happening throughout York Region that is uh, quite tasty, but it's all going towards a great cause. Joining me to chat today to talk more about what the event is all about is Mark Koning, who is the Communications and Operations Manager for the AIDS Committee of York Region. Mark, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's let the listeners know, what is A Taste for Life? A Taste for Life is a um, fundraiser, eventually wide fundraiser actually um, that a lot of AIDS committees throughout Ontario take part in. Uh, in our region, we are covering York, York region. And what it is is we partner with various restaurants in the York region area. And uh, during that one day, May 1st, either lunch or dinner, they dedicate a certain time uh, where patrons can come in and everybody's bill, 25% of the proceeds come to the AIDS Committee of York Region, and 100% of that goes toward the programs and services we offer to our service users. Awesome. Okay, so how long has this event been going on um, in York Region, and how did the concept come about? Um, It's been going on for uh, quite a few years, and the concept came about actually in Ottawa. The Snowy Owl Foundation, along with Bruce House there, they came up with this idea, and uh, they um, saw it was very successful, though, so they shared it with uh, different ASOs uh, that were nearby, and that kind of just expanded. There's other areas throughout Ontario that are involved, and it's even uh, spread into Alberta so far. That is pretty neat. Okay, so then talk to us as to how it works. So then is it on May 1st when um, it actually happens? Do residents have to book reservations? Uh, it's always a good idea to, to reserve. Uh, that way the um, restaurant owners or the, the managers, they know how many people to expect for the evening. And it's always a good idea for people to say that they're uh, specifically going for a taste for life. It gives them more of an idea and it also gives us more of an idea of who is actually attending and how many are aware of the event taking place. Um, And yes, as I said, it happens on May 1st, uh, usually in the evening or it can happen in the afternoon. It depends on the hours that uh, the restaurant managers are running this and they choose to uh, pay the 25% towards our cause. Uh, So it's great. Everyone's welcome. Awesome. Okay, so how many restaurants are participating this year in York Region, and uh, where are they located, if you have that info with you? We have a total of five restaurants participating this year. Uh, We have um, the Old Village Freehouse in Newmarket. We have Bai's Indian Canteen Kitchen in Richmond Hill, along with the Host Fine Indian Cuisine in Richmond Hill, then we also have the Joy's Restaurant in Aurora, and uh, we also have Symposium Cafe up in Keswick. So we are trying to expand and cover all of York Region and get around. That's great. And in your time with uh, the AIDS Committee of York Region and with the uh, A Taste for Life events happening from year to year, uh, how have you seen the reception of the event? How has it been for you um, seeing the events take place and the number of participants that are involved? It, uh, it's it's it goes pretty well. People usually enjoy the event. Um, what we do is we try to make it as fun as possible. We we also um, collect various items throughout the community to uh, run a silent auction at some of these restaurants, and um, that goes over very well. And, and people enjoy the idea of being able to, to give back and not necessarily have to make a substantial donation on their own because really they're just going out for dinner. Um, which everybody enjoys doing every once in a while. So this way they're kind of um, able to do two great things at once. That's awesome. Okay, so of course, as you mentioned off the top, that uh, this event is going towards uh, fundraising and helping to support, of course, the programs and resources that the AIDS Committee, um, not just only in York Region, but in Ontario, the programs that they offer. So specifically to the AIDS Committee of York Region, uh, talk to me about the organization and what uh, programs and resources that you offer to the community. So our organization started out in 1993 at as a grassroots organization, we saw a need um, for people living with HIV to uh, get some sort of assistance, and we grew from there. And the organization, uh, we're, we're small but mighty, 
and we're doing the best we can to cover a large region. We offer support and care to those affected and living with HIV. And when I say affected by, I'm talking about also families. Um, so anyone really that's related to anyone who might be suffering with HIV or living with AIDS. Um, we offer support to uh, medical care, to transportation, to to just kind of knowing that they're not alone in life. Uh, it is a big region, but it's hard to get around and it's hard to do various things and get out. So we're, we're there and try, try to make all the, uh, the connections we can to help them. For listeners who want more information about the AIDS Committee of York Region and, of course, A Taste for Life, which is coming up on May 1st, alongside uh, maybe the list of the restaurants that are participating, where can they go? Anyone who's interested in finding out more information can always visit our website. So that's www.acyr.org, and uh, they will see a Taste for Life banner right there on the first page when they enter. And if they click on that, it will take them to a listing of all the participating restaurants. Uh, they can also follow us on social media. So look for the AIDS Committee of York Region on Facebook or Twitter, and they'll uh, see a little bit more information about all the participants that are involved in helping get this together. Perfect. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me about this. Yes, thank you. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region and beyond. And joining us next is Dan Fleming from Threads of Life. Dan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Tina. Well, I look forward to uh, talking to you guys. Tell us a little bit about what is Threads of Life. Uh, Threads of Life, it's a foundation that was uh, set up in 2003. Uh, Shirley Hickman uh, uh, lost her, I believe, lost her son from a workplace incident that uh, that occurred, and uh, she set up with a group of, group of people, and they've uh, created a, a Threads of Life foundation. And what it is, it supports families that have had a, a workplace incidents, uh, workplace accidents, fatalities, and uh, she she worked with them. And why did you get involved? Uh, personally, I've been involved with the Threads of Life, I guess, for about the last six or seven years now. I, uh, uh, about 10 years ago, my dad passed from a workplace accident. Uh, he was a boilermaker, and he was a construction boilermaker. He ended up with lung cancer, and he ended up, uh, uh, it was directly related to um, uh, to asbestos. And so my mom, she's on a, on a bit of a, a pension now because of that. And uh, I guess about... 15, 20 years even before dad passed, I was uh, with the Construction Safety Association. We always supported Threads of Life as a, and the walk uh, through the Safe Work Association. So as I say, about uh, five years ago, I started um, thinking a little bit more on, the, on you know, losing my dad and, uh, and the, you know, the importance of all, all of that. And I uh, started a hockey tournament. We ended up uh, raising some money for the Threads of Life. And I've also been participating now uh, on the Steps of Life walk uh, for the last two or three years. Well, Dan, I'm sorry about your dad, but can you tell us, how did you know that his lung cancer was directly related to his workplace? Um, well, being in construction uh, with the Safe Work Association, pretty familiar with the statistics that come across right across Canada. Uh, occupational disease is the leading killer of, uh, of um, workers right across Canada. We have, in, in the construction industry, we're up about 100 fatalities a year of uh, critical injuries, but you could say there are roughly two Two to three hundred uh, uh, occupational diseases. Uh, asbestos, uh, I guess the legislation came in the early 70s, but asbestos has been like the number one killer. It's, uh, it's got a latency period of 20, 30 years. And so we look at the pipe trades, the boilermakers, uh, uh, asbestos workers. Um, now, well, hopefully we've passed the peak when uh, uh, that uh, uh, that's going to impact the workers, but there's uh, dad passed uh, with the asbestos and uh, we were able to. I talked to the, the doctors and they said, yes, uh, the fact that he'd been working with Boilermakers all his life uh, was directly related. So yeah, it's, a, it's a terrible disease. Uh, Dad was diagnosed, I guess, in March uh, uh, with, the, uh, with the lung cancer and he passed away in May, like two months later. So it was very quick. Yeah, yeah. And what has changed since your father passed in terms of, you know, workplace and the changes that they've made inside the workplace? Well, well, we've got some very strong uh, uh, work we're doing with the IHSA, Infrastructure Health and Safety Association, uh, uh, and also uh, a lot of the trades are now stepping up more with uh, the enforcement of uh, safe work procedures uh, when we're working around asbestos, uh, silica, 
is another one that we recognize now as a as a major killer uh, out there. You know, we're used in the old days. We used to sort of get in there and it'd be a dusty, dirty environment, and just sort of accepted that. And now, uh, with the education that we're doing for the trades, uh, through the uh, through the trade unions, the apprenticeship programs, uh, the younger workers and also the uh, the older workers are more aware of the hazards and the risks. We're always sort of initially we we think of a, a hazard or a risk as being like you know falling off of a building or a piece of material hitting you. Um, the uh, the fact that the occupational diseases are now being addressed is a uh, is huge important. And it really sends a better message, not a better message, a message out there that uh, occupational diseases are a big killer. Now, Dan, you mentioned that Threads of Life offers education programs. What other kinds of services and supports does it offer? Uh, the Threads of Life, they have a, a family forum. Uh, so what, what is a, a, work, uh, a family member is lost from a workplace accident? Uh, Threads of Life offer a, a family forum where actually they can uh, meet up with uh with uh, the Threads Life people, and then uh, they'll actually do a, a couple of times a year. They'll get together and they'll have a sort of a network, get together and be able to talk about uh, about what they've gone through uh, of losing their family member and uh, provide support and emotional emotional help for them. Uh, they've also got um, a partnerships uh, where they're actually working with uh, 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 with the WSID, and so they they work in there. They they provide uh, speakers. They have a speakers form also. So if you're um, if you uh, if you've lost a loved one, uh, I'm not participating in that myself. Where you'll be able to speak with um, uh, go for a uh, with a contractor, a contractor or a company that wants to actually uh, do something for health and safety, they'll contact uh, Threads of Life, and then they'll send a speaker out that can actually speak on the impact of uh, of losing a family member because of a workplace in- incident. Now, Threads of Life has a special event coming up next weekend. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's the Steps of Life Walk. Uh, Steps for Life is actually uh, what it is. It's on. Uh, it's usually the first week of last week of April, first week of May each year. As going right around the uh, right around the country, they're doing this uh, since uh, April 2005. Uh, they've had, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, they've been doing the speakers. So we're just back on the speaker things. But uh, I guess um, Threads of Life Walk. Uh, what we're doing here in Toronto. So each each community has their own Steps of Life uh, Steps for Life Walk. Uh, in Toronto, we've got about, um, I guess, about forty-five thousand is what our uh, is what our goal is, and it's a five-k walk where companies can actually uh, and families can come out, and we're going to go down to Coronation Park this year. That sounds fantastic. So one more time, it's Steps for Life in Toronto on April twenty-eighth at Coronation Park. Uh, what time does it start? Uh, Eleven o'clock. And where can our listeners get more information? You can go to the Steps for Life website at. Uh, uh, threads of Life, uh, www.threadsoflife.ca, and then uh, go to the Toronto uh, Steps for Life walk, and that's for the uh, the Toronto one. And then they can also actually, any community that's here in Ontario, uh, they've got walks going on in Mississauga. They've got them out in, in Oshawa, and, uh, right across the province. So uh, they can actually log in, and uh, you can set up, you can set, put a team in, involved in there. Uh, you can uh, uh, donate to uh, to one of the walks. It's a great walk. It's a beautiful way to spend a day and to support the uh, Threads of Life. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region, and on this show, we share stories from across the region and beyond, and these stories come to us from across our social platforms. And joining us next on the show is Deborah Kasheshin, and she's the Director of Development for Better Living Charitable Foundation, and she came to us and connected with us through Facebook. So, Deborah, thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Tina. Can you tell us a little bit about your foundation? Yes, so uh, our organization raises funds to support hospice in York Region. So we operate the new 10-bed residential facility, Margaret Bain Hospice in Newmarket, and we also support the Doan House Community Hospice, also in Newmarket. And can you tell us a little bit about what happens in a hospice? So a hospice is that perfect marriage between uh, home and hospital. So if you think of having 24-7 certified, qualified uh, palliative care support team, nurses, psychosocial, doctors in a home-like environment. So we have 
private room. Uh, families can stay over in a Murphy bed. We've got, uh, you know, private uh, en suite in each room. Each room you have private little um, courtyard that people can actually pull the bed right outside. A lot of people enjoy that. And then there's a beautiful kitchen where families can go in and just kind of take their mind off what's happening. Um, and we provide wonderful 24-7 care here at Margaret Bain. And how does a hospice become an option for those few that are able to, you know, or are considering a hospice? Right. So, so again, someone with a terminal illness, uh, they've been deemed palliative by their doctor, and usually they've been referred to a palliative care specialist. So um, a, a residential hospice comes into play usually around when there's about three months left of life. Um, that would be a candidate who would then come to a residential hospice and we basically take over their care here for them and we celebrate. Our, our biggest thing here is that we say we live until we die. So we have celebrations, we have birthdays, we uh, we have a lot. Easter coming up, we're going to have a big Easter dinner for folks. So um, it's a it's a very comforting environment. Definitely a sad time for people, but uh, far better than being in a in a crowded emergency of a hospital. And beyond the medical support, is there are there other supports that are available inside the hospice? Absolutely. So a lot of what we focus too is on uh, is on family members. Grief and bereavement is a big piece of what we do here, and we we start that uh, through our community hospices uh, all throughout York Region. Um, you know, very early in diagnosis, people will come to a hospice, a community hospice, and seek out grief and bereavement support. They seek out care for caregiver support, and uh, it's it's a great network to research if you are uh, dealing with a life limiting limiting illness for yourself or a loved one. Um, residential hospice, you would definitely start to look at. Um, and, and when people come here, they get a lot of support through just the, the other families in the home as well at the same journey that they're going through. Um, so there's an awful lot of care and love here. We have a psychosocial team who can help people with a lot of the emotional ups and downs um, and help them navigate the healthcare system a little bit. Um, a lot of people haven't experienced a death before, so having people who have been through it uh, can help them navigate it. Now, you mentioned that you have a number of special events throughout the year, and you have one coming up on May 5th. Can you tell us a bit about Hike for Hospice? That's right. So Hike for Hospice is a national initiative. So right across Canada, um, almost every hospice participates. And our chosen date is May the 5th. And we will have this beautiful memorial stroll. Uh, we start at Ferry Lake in Newmarket. And we actually walk right up to Margaret Bain Hospice, where we stop and pay our respects to our residents here and their families. That sounds great. And uh, any special uh, guests uh, on that uh, hike that day? <laughs> Yeah, we're thrilled. We just found out yesterday that uh, our local girl, Gabrielle Daleman, uh, ice skating champion, is coming to join us at Ferry Lake. So uh, we're just thrilled that she shares our values of hospice and she'll come out and uh, shake hands and talk to folks and uh, just get us kicked off for our hike. So, Deborah, one more time, the information about the hike for hospice on May 5th. Mm -hmm. And if our listeners want more information, where can they go? They can go to our website, myhospice.ca. Uh, there's information there. They can click on the link to the hike, and or they can call me directly, 905-967-1500, extension 134. That's terrific. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. While this may be a news magazine show, every once in a while, we like to feature an upcoming artist with new music to share. Music coordinator Christina Lavecchia now with Only You from Natalie Rachel. Oh, what's going through your mind? You should have told me it was time. She's 16 and already has her first single dropping in one week. We have Natalie Rachel, a singer and songwriter from Vaughn, here in studio. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. So how does it feel to drop your very first single? It's very exciting. Um, this project has been in process for a very long time. Um, I'm also kind of nervous. I mean, putting out original music for anyone to hear is kind of scary. You don't know if people will love it, people won't like it. 
Um, but I'm very excited, and it's it's going to be very cool. So tell me a little bit about the song Only You. So um, the song was actually born in Puerto Rico. One of my producers, Troy Marshall, um, the song is just pretty much about kind of accepting and like admitting your feelings for someone and kind of going through ups and downs with someone in a relationship or friendship. It really could be anything depending on how people interpret it. What made you want to get into music? I don't think I really like there was nothing that really like triggered me getting into music. I feel like it was always in my blood. Um, I grew up in a very musical family. As I was growing up, I was just always singing and um, I started doing commercials, TV shows, short films. I did professional theater. And that's when I kind of realized I wanted to take my career to a professional level. Where do you draw your inspiration from as a songwriter? Kind of just my personal experiences, um, feelings that I go through, different like friendships and just different experiences. And obviously I'm going to go through different stuff as I grow older and um, obviously write more stuff. And uh, also a lot of singers inspire me. Um, a lot of like 90s R&B singers, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey. Um, I love Bruno Mars. He's awesome. He's so cool. So how is it different performing your own song um, compared to someone else's? So growing up, I've always done covers and um, just to kind of get my experience and, you know, practice. And I still do every day. But singing your own music is just so much more personal and you connect to it so much more. And it's your story that you're sharing with others. It's just a special feeling. I mean, like, it, it'll be crazy when it's released for other people to hear it and sing it. So it'll be special. How would you describe your sound? I would describe my sound to be soulful, beachy, soft, um, and bubbly. Um, <laughs> those are interesting words. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So if listeners want to hear more of your music or uh, want to learn more about you, uh, where can they find you online? Um, you can look at my Instagram, uh, Natalie Rachel Music, um, Twitter, Natalie Rachel. So your song will be officially dropping on April 27th. Yeah. Um, so what are you most looking forward to? I know that a lot of people like on social media and stuff, they've been waiting for it for a while now. And they've been like, when's the release date? When's it coming? I mean, I only revealed the release date like a few weeks ago so it's very exciting and I just can't wait for people to hear it and like hear what I've been working on for so long because no one's heard it and no one really knows what to expect kind of so I'm just interested to know what people think and if they like it yeah only you officially drops on April 27th here's your first listen on 105.9 the region
Natalie Rachel's single, Only You, drops on April 27th. And of course, you can catch it here on 105.9 The Region's Playlist. And that's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.